Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, lots of things happened this week. Known cases of coronavirus hit 4 million in the United States, with big surges in Texas, Florida, Alabama, Louisiana, and Mississippi. For the 18th week in a row, some 2.3 million workers applied for unemployment insurance benefits. That's more than twice the worst week of the Great Recession of 2008. And there's a new federal complaint of sexual misconduct by not one, not two, but count them three top Fox News hosts. But somehow when dudes in full camo and military weaponry hustle people who aren't doing anything off the street into unmarked vans, it tends to pull focus from other things. As we record the show, some corporate media seem agog at the idea that federal agents who were deployed with a mission reflected in Defense Secretary Mark Esper's comment that city streets are battle space, filled with what Homeland Security Chief Chad Wolf called violent mobs, that they'd go ahead and tear gas protesters, even though Portland's mayor, Tom Wheeler, was among them. Well, that's outrageous, sure, but we're a bit beyond outrage now, aren't we? While we wait to see if corporate media can decide which optic is an optic too far, we'll talk about the legal, constitutional elements of the fight for our right to protest, including against the very forces that are sent to police the protesting, with Marjorie Cohn past president of the National Lawyers Guild and Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. She's also contributor, editor on a number of books, including The United States and Torture, Interrogation, Incarceration, and Abuse, and Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at some recent press. A few weeks ago, corporate media published numerous reports of Donald Trump signing an executive order that would supposedly, by reinforcing already existing law, punish anyone who damages or attempts to damage federal monuments or statues with up to 10 years of imprisonment. As Josh Cho wrote for FAIR.org, CBS reported that Trump's order, quote, instructs federal law enforcement to prosecute people who damage federal monuments and threatens to withhold federal funding from state and local governments that fail to protect their own public monuments and statues, close quote. NBC also characterized Trump's order as protecting monuments and statues generally, citing the Veterans Memorials Preservation and Recognition Act of 2003. Quote, the order would reinforce existing federal law, which criminalizes the destruction of federal monuments. For instance, the Veterans Memorials Preservation and Recognition Act of 2003 imposes a fine and up to 10 years in prison on anyone who vandalizes a monument, close quote. But despite what Trump t- 
tweets, that's not, in fact, what the Veterans Memorial Law does. The legislation itself is quite brief, which, Cho notes, raises questions about whether journalists actually read it before writing about it. The act says that whoever, quote, willfully injures or destroys or attempts to injure or destroy any structure, plaque, statue, or other monument on public property commemorating the service of any person or persons in the armed forces of the United States shall be fined under this title, imprisoned not more than 10 years or both, close quote. So, As the name suggests, the law applies only to veterans' memorials, not to monuments and statues in general. And as it protects memorials that commemorate service in the United States Armed Forces, it means that statues of Confederate generals, memorialized for fighting against the U.S. military, are not covered. The law also doesn't apply to the destruction of statues and monuments dedicated to folks like Francis Scott Key or Christopher Columbus because they're not U.S. veterans. Nor would it apply to statues and monuments of figures who have served in the U.S. military, like Andrew Jackson, if those memorials are not specifically commemorating their military service. So it's just false when folks like USA Today make claims like anyone who vandalizes or destroys a monument, memorial, or statue already can be sentenced to prison for up to 10 years under federal law. While most egregiously, corporate media frequently didn't even point out that when Trump referred to the Monuments and Statues Act on Twitter, he was referring to something that didn't exist. There's no law by that name. There's no way to say what's going on in Trump's head. Maybe he was referring to his own executive order as an act. That would be a usurpation of legislative authority, treating fiat as though it were law. But the statue story was not the only time that many in corporate media gave their audiences the false impression that Trump has executive powers he doesn't actually have. Earlier this year, a flurry of reports claimed that a Trump order compelled meat processing plants to stay open under the Defense Production Act, despite many of their employees testing positive for COVID-19. The AP's report claimed that Trump took executive action to order meat processing plants to stay open amid concerns over growing coronavirus cases and the impact on the nation's food supply. But as some legal scholars noted, the Trump order didn't actually legally compel meatpackers to do anything. But bad media coverage can turn those kinds of paper-thin proclamations into an actual legal authority by responding to them as though they matter. They can transform Trump's imagination into facts on the ground. In other words, as Josh Cho notes, far from serving to hold power accountable— Overcredulous and undercurious coverage functions more to legitimize abuses of power. It's crucial that media report on Trump's executive orders accurately and not grant him any powers that he may wish to possess but actually does not. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. As we record this show on July 23rd, demonstrations in Portland, Oregon show no signs of slowing. 
protesters demanding an end to racist policing in the wake of and even before George Floyd's murder had been met with what local activists describe as typical aggression from Portland's police department, the indiscriminate firing of tear gas and other munitions into peaceful crowds, flashbang grenades, beatings with batons. But then came the footage. A man dressed in black stands apparently alone on a darkened sidewalk when two heavily armed men in camouflage walk up on him, hustle him off into an unmarked van, and drive off, refusing to identify themselves to observers. We've since learned this is part of an orchestrated effort by the Trump administration to deploy federal law enforcement agents to deal SWAT-style with what they call violent anarchists. What's more, they plan to replay those nightmarish scenes from Portland wherever they see fit. As acting Homeland Security Chief Chad Wolf says, quote, I don't need invitations, close quote. Wolf also subsequently described federal agents as arresting demonstrators proactively. Alarm seems appropriate. Here to help us think about what we're seeing is author and legal scholar Marjorie Cohn. She's Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and a former president of the National Lawyers Guild. She joins us now by phone from San Diego. Welcome back to Counterspin, Marjorie Cohn. Thanks for having me, Janine. Well, these street pickups, when you first see it, you think it's a movie. As I understand it, the line is that these federal agents see someone, not necessarily anyone they've seen commit a crime. They say they want to talk to that person, have a consensual conversation with them. And then they, the agents, fear for their own safety, so they decide they want to have that conversation elsewhere like the courthouse, and then, oh, you're free to go. This wasn't even an arrest at all. Is that legal or constitutional? No, it's not. In order to have a legal arrest, you need probable cause to believe that the person committed a crime. And these snatches by unidentified federal officials in unmarked vehicles snatching peaceful protesters off the streets, transporting them to unknown locations without informing them of why they're being arrested and later releasing them with no record of their arrest, violates the law. And this proactive arrest that uh, the Department of Homeland Security is intending to carry out violates the Fourth Amendment, which requires that as I said, an arrest be supported by probable cause. This reminds me of the movie Minority Report, where they're trying to predict who's going to commit a crime. There's nothing in the law that allows proactive arrest. There have been lawsuits filed, and they basically allege violations of the First Amendment, freedom of speech and press, the Fourth Amendment, prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures, the Fifth Amendment, right to due process, and the Tenth Amendment, which says that powers not delegated to the feds are reserved to the states. And this is what is being litigated now. One attorney, Juan Chavez, with the Oregon Justice Resource Center said, it's like stop and frisk meets Guantanamo Bay. Well, federal law enforcement are permitted to go into states to protect federal property like courthouses and to prosecute federal crimes. But policing protests, you know, just at the letter of the law goes beyond 
that function? Yes, it certainly does. And in fact, a lawsuit that was filed yesterday, no, actually two days ago, on behalf of the First Unitarian Church of Portland, a public benefit corporation, and two Oregon state representatives, alleges violation of the Tenth Amendment and says that these abductions occurred outside the jurisdiction of federal law enforcement. Those abducted were not attacking federal property or personnel, and they weren't on federal property at the time that they were abducted. The ostensible or the stated reason for these federal goons to go into Portland and other cities as well, which is happening as we speak, is to protect federal monuments and statues. Trump issued an executive order on June the 26th saying that his federal forces were going to protect these monuments. And there's no monuments around where they were. Mark Pettibone, who's one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit filed by the Oregon Department of Justice against Homeland Security and the U.S. Marshals, he was accosted. He was one of these people who was snatched off the street and then released without any citation. He was taken in this unmarked van to a federal courthouse, the Marco Hatfield U.S. Courthouse. And actually, neither the mayor of Portland nor the governor of Oregon invited or welcomed these federal troops. And last night, it's my understanding that the Portland mayor was tear-gassed when he was standing near this courthouse doing nothing. He was standing there, and he was, it was the first time he'd ever been tear-gassed. So they're just going way beyond any legal authority that they might have. And mayors in other cities as well who are on Trump's hit list, I guess you would say, are also saying we don't want federal troops in our cities. Now, these mayors often welcome federal assistance when they're working cooperatively in drug enforcement or other kinds of criminal enforcement, but this goes way beyond that. And it's calculated by Trump to boost his sagging poll numbers. He's taking a page out of Richard Nixon's law and order playbook because he's so botched the uh, response to the coronavirus, in fact, responsible for thousands of deaths when he's been in denial about it and actually stood in the way of really responding in an effective way. So now he is trying to shift the conversation, shift the discourse to anarchists, violent anarchists, left-wingers. Joe Biden would be behind this. Um, And he's going to come in on his white horse with his federal troops and take care of it and restore law and order. But in, in effect, he's breaking the law. His troops are breaking the law and creating chaos. You know, it's interesting, Janine, because why didn't he send in the military? I think there's a reason why he sent in Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection troops. They're loyal. They're also not trained for this kind of thing either, even if if they were legally allowed to be in these cities. But the Uniform Code of Military Justice provides that service members must obey lawful orders, but they have a duty to disobey unlawful orders, and these People, these troops, these secret military force that Trump has been sending into these cities or sent into Portland and Chicago's next on the list and Albuquerque, these could be reasonably construed as unlawful orders, orders to carry out unlawful 
actions, and I think it's uh, not altogether unlikely that he's worried that military people would resist those orders and refuse to carry them out, and maybe that's why he has cobbled together this secret paramilitary militia. It has been the Customs and Border Protection, U.S. Marshals, Federal Protective Service, and now they're going to add the FBI, the ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the Drug Enforcement Agency, to this list of federal agencies. Well, I can see the worry about maybe not using the military because, as you have written about, there was military official pushback after his photo op thing where he used military officials to clear out the space in front of the church. And there was some indication that, you know, we're not going to necessarily have your back. Now, I did, though, want to say, so yeah, so we're bringing in this cobbled together force that includes Customs and Border Patrol, maybe some of them now deputized into this kind of vague federal protective service. And these people, as you mentioned, aren't trained to do crowd control, much less trained to do the kind of de-escalation that would be necessary to protect a protest that is against police, you know. But what those folks do have a history of, you know, what they do have training in is rolling up on people and taking them away in vans when those people's crime is being undocumented. And that's something that people are reminding that not only should we be careful about saying these tactics aren't American since the U.S. has done and is doing them in other places, but we also shouldn't say that this has never happened here before because that's not really true either. Well, it hasn't happened in this kind of a setting in this way. Right. But you're right. The Customs and Border Protection agencies are notoriously, I'm not saying every single one of them, but notoriously racist, anti-immigrant, nativist, and very brutal and violent when they are supposedly enforcing the immigration laws. They kill people and deny them of their rights. And you're right, they're absolutely not trained in crowd control, which is not in their purview anyway. They have no right to be in the middle of Portland doing crowd control where their stated authority is to protect federal monuments. They've gone way beyond the purview, and they are actually saying that they're enforcing the law, where it's really the purview of the state authorities to be enforcing state law. And uh, unfortunately, I think we're going to see this expand and escalate throughout the country as Trump gets more and more desperate to elevate his falling poll numbers. Right. Well, and, and speaking of context, I mean, there is something, I agree, especially eerie and and frightening about this bundling people into vans, you know, footage. And it's true that we had seen it in the past sometimes with undocumented immigrants, including people kind of forming bands around them to protect them, you know, from being hustled off. But the thing is, we don't want that to be so, while it's especially horrible, we don't want that to be because we've become numb to images of demonstrators being shot with munitions, being beaten with batons, being tear gassed, you know. And you wrote earlier this month, I saw it on Truthout, about we're not just seeing videos of extremely rare, nearly unique instances. There really is a a widespread 
problem of police abuse of protesters going on. Yes, there is, and I think it's going to get worse. You know, when you think of the image of people being snatched off the streets, peaceful protesters doing nothing illegal, being snatched off the streets by people that aren't wearing uniforms and placed into into vans, this reminds me of the dictatorships in, in Latin America that were supported by the United States, which di- who disappeared people. It was called disappearing people, and they would do it in broad daylight, snatch them just like this and put them in a van, and many of them were never heard of since. Many of them were killed. This is kidnapping, and they did it in broad daylight to send a message to other people that if you don't do what we want you to do, this will happen to you as well. You know, in the Department of Justice, the Oregon Department of Justice's lawsuit against Homeland Security and the U.S. Marshals, they wrote, ordinarily a person exercising his right to walk through the streets of Portland who is confronted by anonymous men in military-type fatigues and ordered into an unmarked van can reasonably assume that he's being kidnapped and is a victim of the crime. And kidnapping by militia and other malfeasance dressed in paramilitary gear would trigger the law right of self-defense. So what they're doing is setting up a situation where people think they're going to be kidnapped and would fight back. And if they're armed, they could use weapons. And this could lead to uh, killing. It could lead to a horrible situation. Um, this is kidnapping, pure and simple. No probable cause for these arrests. Well, it seems like almost a side note, but Let's talk for a minute about the concealed identities. You know, it's not like these folks were undercover. They didn't blend. So why conceal your identity except to evade accountability? Absolutely. And, you know, this opens the door to right-wing vigilantes putting on military fatigues, camouflage outfits, and doing the same thing that these federal agents are doing. And uh, I don't know what Trump would say about that. He he has a double standard, of course, when right-wingers do it, you know, and uh, then, you know, that's fine. But he's painting black people as terrorists. He's painting white people as Antifa, you know, the, the white allies in the movement for black lives, painting them with a broad brush, pulling out accusations that this is these these are you know left-wing democratic anarchists violent anarchists and if joe biden is elected this is what we're going to get there is a certain critical mass and i don't know if it's 30 or 40 percent or what of people who support trump no matter what and it's music to their ears and that's who he's playing to that's his base that's who he is relying on to put him in the white house again and quite frankly janine what i'm concerned about is that this is all a dry run for an election that goes against trump he declares martial law and he uses his federal goons to maintain power. Now, if he tries to use the military, I really suspect that a, a large number of service members would disobey those orders. But when he was asked on Fox News by Chris Wallace whether he would accept the results of the election, he said, I have to see. I have to see. <laughs> Can you imagine? It depends. If I don't like the result, I may not accept the results of the election. And that combined with massive program of voter suppression is very, very frightening. 
Well, just finally, Philadelphia's district attorney, Larry Krasner, says, you know, try it. Anybody, federal agent or not, committing crimes in my district will be arrested. You know, Rashida Tlaib says they'll have to arrest me first if they try to bring this to Minneapolis. So we have some legislation. There's legislation about agents have to identify themselves and their agency. We've got lawsuits from the ACLU and other folks. But it seems really clear that people are the power that is driving things right now. So I I just want to ask you to talk about what we need to do to actually vouchsafe the right to protest in this country. And, you know, where does that power lie? Clearly, we can't only rely on the legal system to protect these rights. It's the power of the people, and people are in the streets, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets in U.S. cities and in cities around the world in support of the movement for black lives and against police brutality. And yes, we can't rely on the legal system, but it's a tool that we have to use. And I'm very proud to say that my organization, the National Lawyers Guild, is front and center in the middle of legal defense for the protesters, the legal observers who wear those green caps marked National Lawyers Guild. They're not protesters. They're there to witness what the police are doing, and they have been the target of police brutality and violence. And in fact, there is an ACLU lawsuit to enjoin, and it's it's asking for an injunction against these federal agents targeting legal observers and targeting journalists as well, because the last thing in the world that the Trump administration and his goons want are uh, witnesses our media that are witnessing what's happening. And so they're going after journalists, they're going after legal observers. But there are lawsuits being filed in support of the real power, and that is the power of the people. And we've seen that in the streets for the last 50-some days since the public lynching of George Floyd. And I think that what Trump is doing is going to exacerbate or elevate those protests. We're going to see much more protesting now that he is committing these illegal atrocities with his private military, paramilitary force. Well, we've been speaking with Marjorie Cohn. You can find her recent work on truthout.org, along with other outlets, as well as her own site, marjoriecohn.com. Thank you very much, Marjorie Cohn, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on FAIR's website, fair.org. That's also the place to sign up for FAIR's newsletter extra or our action alert network. The show is engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.
welcome to the TaxCast from the Tax Justice Network, our monthly podcast on how to take back control from the super rich and powerful and how to reprogram our economies to work for all of us. I'm the producer and host, Naomi Fowler. I'm joined each month by the Tax Justice Network's John Christensen. Say hello, John. Uh, Hello, how are you? Coming up later, you'll hear our part two on tax and systemic racism. As we continue to ignore the racist history of the tax code, ignore the fact that policy is not race neutral, and that the tax system is not immune to racism, then we will continue to see the impact of black and brown communities and communities of color worsen in the most negative ways. More on that later. So this month has been somewhat of a vindication for the Tax Justice Network, yet again, for estimating so long ago the amounts of wealth stashed offshore. So, John, let's look at the context first. One of the Tax Justice Network's first major demands to unlock the numbers on global wealth stashed offshore was the automatic exchange of information on bank accounts between nations. Back in the early 2000s, people laughed at this idea. They said it would never happen. It used to all be done by information upon request, which was a joke. Um, But it has slowly, if imperfectly, been adopted by many countries. And the OECD's just announced that nearly 100 countries carried out automatic exchange of information in 2019. And that means tax authorities have got the data of 84 million financial accounts held offshore by their residents, covering total assets of 10 trillion euros. So hidden accounts, unhidden, means more tax revenue. Trillions of dollars of offshore assets are now in tax authorities' sites that wouldn't otherwise ever have been. Tell us the story, John, on this for the Tax Justice Network. Yes, it's true. Less than 10 years ago, the head of the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development told me that automatic information exchange wouldn't happen in my lifetime. And here we are, and we've got automatic information exchange as a global standard Not perfect yet, but a work in progress, great. But the reason it's so important is because people who've been paying attention to the offshore world of secrecy jurisdictions and tax havens knew that the sums involved, the sums of private wealth and corporate wealth sitting offshore untaxed were simply eye-watering. Let me give you an idea. Back in 2005, when Tax Justice Network was just getting started, I got some information out of the Boston Management Consulting Group, had some limited data on offshore wealth, and I also had some limited information from the Bank for International Settlements, and I had a little bit of information from the IMF. And working with that, Richard Murphy and I came up with a figure of 11.5 trillion US dollars of personal wealth sitting offshore. And yet we knew all along that that was just a small part of the figures. And that 11.5 trillion generated huge newspaper headlines, but we knew it was far, far too low. But others were telling us, no, it's nothing like that. It's far, far smaller. You've got it totally wrong. The gaps in our data sets were enormous. For example, there was no information about capital flows out of Africa. In other words, all those illicit financial flows accumulating over decades out of coming out of Africa, they weren't part of the, the data sets. And subsequently, one of the senior regulators in Jersey, in the tax haven of Jersey, said that our estimates of the volume of wealth held in trusts just in Jersey was about half of their estimates. 
So we knew we'd, we'd arrived at a very conservative picture. But I also knew that there was this person in New York who had a much better data set. And I think it was towards the year end of 2005, I went to New York and I met up with Jim Henry for the first time. And, and I realised Jim Henry had much, much better data than we could even dream about. Right, and we've got Jim Henry, the Tax Justice Network's senior advisor, with us today. Jim, you got so much closer than anyone else ever has with these estimates that you did, and they are so difficult to estimate, and you've called it yourself, you've called it an exercise in night vision, <laughs> and you estimated offshore wealth to be between 21 trillion to 32 trillion, much higher than other estimates, now borne out by these OECD figures. What does this mean now for the world? Well, it means we've discovered an eighth continent of, uh, of wealth, really. I mean, this is the equivalent of, you know, the combined uh, wealth of a lot of developing countries is sitting there. What we did in our estimates uh, that we published in 2012 uh, with Tax Justice Network support was to really look at this as a kind of a black hole. And when you know astronomers estimate the size of a black hole, they triangulate on the methods because you can't see... Uh, the entity itself, because it traps all of the light. So you have to look at it indirectly by looking at other metrics. So one of the methods we used was the one that John referred to, and we updated that and I think uh, got some more accurate information on the volume of so-called uh, cross-border deposits. The Bank for International Settlements uh, publishes data on that. Deposits are only a share of the total portfolio of wealth that's held offshore. And so we also interviewed private bankers who said that, you know, this is on average like 25 uh, to 30 percent or even less as a, as a fraction of the total portfolio. Uh, so you actually have to get a, an estimate. You can scale up the deposit number that we had back then from the Bank for International Settlements by a factor of four to five. And so that led to our original estimates of, you know, 21 to 32 trillion. In addition to that, we also looked at capital flight that was pouring out of the developing countries. And the World Bank published a, a lot of uh, ba balance of payments data on you know, the, the amount of loans and foreign investments that were supposedly flowing into countries specifically like Brazil or Mexico. And the, the volume of international reserves and the current account that were used to uh, were being financed by this foreign capital. And you saw big discrepancies in these numbers. When you added up those discrepancies, it, it turned out that the, the developing world as a whole was is actually uh, suffering a lot of illicit flows, uh, unrecorded foreign uh, investments, usually by the wealthiest people in the, in the countries, and kleptocrats as well, who were moving money offshore, hiding it in havens and uh, been investing it mainly in the first world countries. So that allowed a second method for estimating this overall total. When you accumulated those uh, flows and looked at what they might be earning offshore, you found that the, the value of the private offshore financial wealth was on the order from the developing world on the order of $12 trillion. And so that's you know consistent with the overall estimates from 21 to 32 for the world as a whole. But it's important, especially for developing countries, because that, compared with their foreign debt and their offshore reserves, shows that they're basically a net creditor of uh, the rich world, because most of this money is 
not invested in the Cayman Islands or Panama. It's basically invested in London and New York and Zurich. So that's an important finding, especially for developing countries. And the third estimate we got was just to go to the private banks themselves, the top 100 international private banks as of 2010, had a total of 12 trillion of offshore deposits and so-called client assets that they were reporting. And the top 10 of those banks, institutions like UBS and Credit Suisse and JP Morgan, Citibank, HSBC, Barclays, these players, the so-called international private banks, had set up departments, private banking departments, global wealth management, they, they call them now, to basically help wealthy people in all over the planet, including developing countries, take money out of their countries, hide it, secure it, and, and invest it generally tax-free. And this is, you know, really an important part of this finding because our estimates are much more consistent with the existence and the importance of this global haven industry, which is led not by, you know, shady banks and sultry paradises or dubious law firms <laughs> in places like Panama, but folks that are in the very heartlands of the first world uh, financial centers like City of London, certainly New York and uh, Frankfurt, Zurich, these are the, the real financial capitals of capital flight. It's important to note that the 10 trillion euro number that you came up with leaves out the United States, which is one of the big recipients of these offshore deposits. Right. The United States still refuses to participate. I mean, it did a U-turn under the Obama administration. And as we know, the US is the tax haven of choice for the world. Second place in our financial secrecy index in terms of secrecy and scale. Isn't it a disgrace that they still aren't participating in a global standard? Yeah, it's absolutely a disgrace. And it's, you know, this is an ongoing problem. I mean, basically, Wall Street doesn't care which party it is. It's the kind of the bankster party. So they have a you know, two or 3,000 lobbyists in Washington representing the financial services industry, very big contributors to elections right up to now. Um, there have been other analysts over time who have made a lot of noise about lower estimates. Basically, you know, what we've shown in the OECD estimates is that we can have a lot of confidence in the, the scale and order of magnitude of this much larger range. That That's an important, I think, validation of the three-pronged estimation method that we used and uh, this fundamental critique that we've had of this global system. Thanks, John. Thanks, Jim. Now it's time for the TaxCast special feature. In episode 102 of the TaxCast, we looked at the way white supremacy is embedded in the US tax system. We looked at how wealth is still overwhelmingly in white hands, passed down from generation to generation since the times of slavery. Those advantages continue, with white families disproportionately benefiting from laws that were created to make taxing them extremely difficult. In so many countries, people of colour and marginalised communities still face barriers to full and equal economic participation. There are huge costs for people when they're discriminated against in so many ways. It's a painful thing. But if governments don't care about people, they should at least care about the economic damage their structural racism is causing. Because you get lower levels of innovation and productive economic activity. And that means less tax revenue. And that means weaker public services to make people's lives 
better. This is Sean Rochester, author of the book The Black Tax, The Cost of Being Black in America. He's giving a talk here at Hofstra University. How is it that after 400 years, over 40 million African-Americans only own about 2% of U.S. wealth? Now, normally when we talk about discrimination, we talk about it from the perspective of the injustice or the immorality associated with it. I wanted to look at things a little differently. I wanted to look at what is the financial cost associated with it? And more importantly, what does research say that those costs are? What we have to remember is that people were emancipated. They left bondage with no capital, no resources. In 1870, African-Americans owned about 0.17% of U.S. wealth. It's effectively nothing, right? Now, there was some talk about providing land, right, and a mule. That's the 40 acres and a mule. We all heard about that, right? Uh, that, of course, never happened. Uh, there is something that did happen that's called the Homestead Act, right? In 1862, Congress passed this law, the Homestead Act. And because of this law, they would proceed to distribute about 246 million acres to 1.5 million white families. You're talking about $1.6 trillion in total, or the equivalent of about a million dollars a family on the high end. So that means, you know, you could be an immigrant coming from another country, you have a chance to claim this land, and if you did, you took possession of it after five years. So you could come here literally with nothing but the shirt on your back, and in five years be in an extraordinary financial position. Now, Researchers say that there are about up to 93 million uh, white Americans are direct beneficiaries of this. Direct beneficiaries, not tertiary, not secondary, not kind of, sort of, some way related, direct of a massive, you know, government giveaway. In terms of the potential of land that would have been distributed, you're talking about on the high end, about a trillion dollars. That was denied, Right. But at the same time, $1.6 trillion worth of value was distributed. Important to know. Huh. Another reason why proper inheritance taxes are key to reparational justice. Even after slavery was abolished, most African-Americans worked in slavery-like conditions and less than 1% of African-Americans had access to mortgages. Affordable loans are still difficult. And there's education. Sean Rochester again. In the South, for every dollar invested in a black child, you have five to eight invested to educate a white child. Uh, black teachers in the South are being paid 25 to 34% on the dollar of what white teachers are being paid. White students are receiving 50% more years of education by the time they are 25. Massive differential in investment in human capital. It is so substantial that researchers say, listen, if you had just invested in the children the same, just keep all the discrimination and stuff in the marketplace. Just invested in the children's sake. That could have cut the income gap by up to 50%. Just doing that. So when you start talking about this happening across millions of children for up to 90 years, in a generation you're talking about over $600 billion of financial impact. And across that period of time, you're talking about up to $3 trillion. So there is a cost to discrimination. That's the cost 
to black people, right? But what was lost by the country from not taking advantage of fully integrating black talent and excellence into the economy? And I want to look at it from an innovation standpoint. We'd be looking at another 280,000 patents. No innovation, no America as we know it. You're talking about over $2 trillion in national income that we don't have now, year over year. You're talking about over $9 trillion in net worth that we don't have now. Having talented people involved in the innovation process is super critical. Now, a researcher from university, Michigan State University did a really interesting study. She asked this, I thought was a profound question, which is what would have happened to innovation if white Americans had experienced the level of trauma that black Americans experienced? It's a really profound question. And her research says that 40% of the patents would have never been created. You don't do discoveries in, in trauma. You need time and space to focus on stuff like that, right? 40% of the patents, that's a million patents. Which of these things would be infected by that? Light bulbs and photocopiers, movies and transistors and so on and so forth. What would be the economic impact in terms of revenue? You're talking about over $7 trillion of revenue and over $30 trillion in net wealth. Astounding figures. And the structural disadvantages and exclusion faced by people of colour has been devastatingly clear in the coronavirus pandemic. It's disproportionately made them ill and resulted in many deaths. People of colour in the UK have also suffered disproportionately. Let's talk about the most basic human right, access to health care free at the point of delivery. Well, in the US's marketized system, people of colour are the ones who tend to have the least access. The UK's public health care system has been undermined by private interests for years, and it's now at grave risk from the US trade talks post-Brexit. We discussed that in episode 92 of the Tatscast. Sadly, the British Parliament's just voted against a clause in the trade bill that would have protected our National Health Service from any form of control from outside the UK. Any policy that denies a basic human right of access to health care in a modern world is a devastatingly bad political choice. In the United States, about 27 million people don't have any health insurance. Many more millions are underinsured. And so many of those who do have cover struggle. Insurance premiums paid by employers are pretty much compulsory. And they reduce your wages a lot. Here's economist Gabriel Zuckman. I want to talk about how unfair that system is and uh, how it could be replaced by uh, something more sustainable. The way this works today is that health insurance for workers is funded through what you could call a huge privatized poll tax. It's like a tax, but it's a private tax. And it's crashing because this tax is growing very fast. Private health insurance premiums now amount to 7% of national income, that's about 10% of labor compensation in the U.S. The current premiums are so regressive, are so unfair, if you replace those by taxes that are proportional to income, or maybe more than proportional to income, progressive, higher rates when your income rises, this would lead to a huge reduction in costs for the vast majority of working families. If you do this very simple fix, you replace 
insurance premiums that are fixed amounts per head today by taxes based on ability to pay, you ensure that more than 90%, maybe up to 95% of Americans benefit from such a change in funding. And for tens of millions of Americans, that's the biggest take-home pay increase in a generation. So, for all that politicians love to talk about tax cuts, in the United States they keep on failing to repeal and reform this most unfair private tax of all. When we were hit with COVID-19 and the coronavirus struck, it was clear that states needed to adopt Medicaid expansion and extend health care to people who were most in need and people who were undocumented, people who didn't have access. Courtney Sanders of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. In the U.S., there are huge disparities among people of color, specifically Black people and Hispanic and Latinx people. We know that they are in need of this. In this very crucial time, it it is crucial to keep people healthy and safe, containing the spread of the virus. And we can only do that if people have access to good health care. And with COVID... You know, we may all be in this together, but the impact is not the same. And as we continue to ignore the racist history of the tax code, ignore the fact that policy is not race neutral and that the tax system is not immune to racism, then we will continue to see the impact of black and brown communities and communities of color worsen in the most negative ways. We need to have a system that can ensure people have access to affordable health care and quality health care no matter what happens. This is Brandon McCoy, president of the New Jersey Policy Perspective. And then COVID happens and that's just sort of, it, it, make, it makes the point perfectly clear that the health care system that we currently have, even more if we were to improve in the ways that people want, uh, really wouldn't deliver the things that clearly folks need right now. Right. I, I mean, I appreciate uh, for a Frenchman like uh, Zuckman is, it's such a, a simple logic, <laughs> but such a heavily marketized economy in the US, it, it's it's a much more of a political question. But I, I mean, I see there's some leeway for some states to do something to address the healthcare disparities, which, as we know, affect people of colour so much more deeply. The governor in Kentucky has uh, recognised that there is this urgent need to address the healthcare disparities and he's promising free healthcare for all who need it and I wonder how he proposes to finance that. Yeah, I, I'm I'm waiting with bated breath to see that. It's it's a very interesting moment in America because you know, obviously the whole world is dealing with um, the pandemic and the financial crunch and economic crisis. But um, in America, we've had this reckoning with racism and you know systemic discrimination in the wake of the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and so many others. And so it's really brought to the fore just how much government policies and budgets drive inequality. And as someone who works on budgets day in, day out and sort of has, you know, struggled to get people to realize how important budgets are and that budgets are moral documents that we should all care about, it's an incredible and somewhat unexpected thing to see, right? So it's wonderful to see the governor of Kentucky say, okay, we're going we're gonna to pursue a budgetary line item here that explicitly 
funds healthcare for black Kentuckians because this moment is very clearly calling out the, for, for the fact that we need direct and explicit programs and services and investments in black residents because they have been explicitly divested from for so long and disenfranchised for so long. For a very long time here, we've had a sort of a, um, a rising tide lifts all boats point of view in this country and saying, okay, well, you know, communities of color will benefit if we just invest in broad-based policies. And I think this is a moment where people are saying, okay, we know that's not true. Right, like, doesn't mean we shouldn't invest in those broad-based policies, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't push for uh, things that benefit everyone. But communities of color have been specifically and explicitly pushed behind and disenfranchised, and to address those harms, we're going to have to have explicit policies that benefit them. Right, and I, I suppose one of the first things that he'll be looking at, uh, I'm talking about the governor of Kentucky, you know, things like um, wealth taxes uh, would be the obvious ones. And you always come up against the same objections anywhere in the world when you try to tax wealthy people. You know, they have this hallowed status, which is often very undeserved of uh, being wealth creators when they're usually wealth extractors or very often like in President Trump. Uh, case, you know, just born into money, so never had to struggle for anything. They will say, oh, these people, they will leave. They will leave. (laughs) How do you respond to that? Yeah, and so this is definitely a common point of contention in New Jersey, where I work. New Jersey is a state with a lot of very wealthy people, and where I think we go back and forth with like Massachusetts and Connecticut for the wealthiest states in the country. And the way that we, you know, we look at it is, okay, well, how many wealthy people live here compared to previously? (laughs) And so going back into uh, 1994, New Jersey had approximately 10,500 tax filers who earned over $500,000 a year. The data at that time only provided information for everybody who made 500000 and over. That was like the highest level bracket you could you could find information on. So that was 1994, 10,500, 500,000 plus filers. And as of 2015, the number of folks who filed taxes in New Jersey with that level of income, 500000 and more, was over 62000 that's a six-fold increase in about 20 years. And the only times that we saw that number drop was during the two recessions that the country had, was the recession of 2001-2002 and then the Great Recession from 2007 to 2009. Other than those two periods, the number of wealthy tax filers in New Jersey has gone up continuously at a a very healthy rate. Obviously, you know, $500,000 adjusting for inflation is something that we've gotten taken take into account here, and it's tough to do when we don't have the data on every single individual tax file to figure out just how much money they're making. But still, you know, a six-fold increase in raw figures, significant increase. And so the other point that we've made is that when people say, okay, people are going to leave New Jersey because of taxes, well, the number one place that people go to if they leave New Jersey is to New York State. New York State has higher taxes than we do. So, you know, it helps us make the point that it's not about the taxes. It's about what are the assets that you have? What are the opportunities for, you know, success, financial success that exists in your state? And that's what people are going to care about. That's what's going to keep them around. And we work with an organization called Patriotic Millionaires, uh, which is a bunch of uh, wealthy folks who make the same argument saying, you know, what's going to get me to leave New Jersey isn't, you know, another two cents tax on every dollar I make over a million dollars which is basically the millionaire's tax proposal that our governor has put forward in recent years, it's if I cannot ride the train 
and get to Midtown Manhattan in less than 40 minutes, right? Like it's, it's if the assets that exist here are not high quality enough for me to do what I got to do and for me to be successful. It's, it's if the schools are not high quality enough for me to have faith and trust that my children are going to have a proper education. That's what's going to get me to leave New Jersey. And so I think reframing the conversation, you know, by using that information, using that data to say, look, increasing taxes isn't causing people to flee. And when you look at the people who actually are leaving New Jersey, it's people who have low incomes because they can't afford to live here because we haven't done enough to invest in services and assets to reduce the structural costs in their daily lives. That should be the focus, right? Right. And part of rolling back the history of white supremacy that formed today's structures and laws, which continue to exclude and discriminate against people of colour in the US, in the UK, in many countries, is reparations. It must be reparations. Yes, yes. When we think about the ways in which black Americans have been left out of opportunities to build wealth and security, not having the opportunity to own homes in an affordable fashion, not being able to live in diverse communities that have greater access to opportunity, not being able to achieve levels of education at an affordable rate that others have have been subsidized to do. For me, a, a more complete vision of reparations would be reducing the cost and reducing the barriers to opportunities to build wealth for black Americans. And that's going to require having a tax system that supports those investments. You know, um, former Representative John Conyers, who represented Michigan for so long, introduced a, a reparations bill in every Congress since 1989 up until his, his uh, retirement and passing. It was, just, it was just a bill to study the concept of reparations. It wasn't even describing or prescribing what reparations should be. And that's gained more support in recent years, but it still hasn't happened. That should happen. And New Jersey recently passed a bill or a law supporting the formation of a reparations study commission. And just to ha you know, being able to study this in earnest and saying, what is it, what policies will succeed at reparative justice, I think is an important step. But we haven't even been able to sort of study it in the governmental space in an honest and earnest fashion. And so seeing that happen sometime soon is, is very exciting. And I think we should, it's going to allow for a more robust and comprehensive conversation about what reparations look like in America for black Americans. You've been listening to the TaxCast. Thanks for joining us. We're going to be talking more about reparations models in action very soon. I've been talking to Brandon McCoy of the New Jersey Policy Perspective on www.njpp.org. I've also been talking to Courtney Sanders of the Centre on Budget and Policy Priorities. You can find them on www.cbpp.org. All the details are in the show notes also for the other speakers. Thanks for listening. I'm going to take a much needed break next month, so I'll be back with you in September. Keep safe and well. Bye for now.